We are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. Today we'll be in chapter 6, beginning in verse 22. And I've said this several times in several different places, but I think it bears repeating. I love the Gospel of John. Like, I absolutely love this portion of Scripture. You know, as uh, my wife and I are praying about this next season of church planting and trying to figure out what part of the Bible do we start preaching when we begin to gather our church in Tampa, my mind is like, let's just do John. Let's just preach John forever because I love this part of the Bible. It was, uh, it was the first book of the Bible that I studied with any sort of depth. It was back when I was in middle school and my family came to Bay Life Church and decided to make this our church home and out in the lobby, I don't really know or remember why Bay Life was doing this, but they were handing out copies of the Gospel of John to visitors and it, it looked like the cover had been made on like, like Microsoft clip art. It was very poorly done, but it was the NIV version of the Gospel of John and I remember sitting in the living room of my house reading through that even as a middle schooler and just being captured by the stories in this portion of scripture. This gospel was the first one that I ever preached through some 10 years ago uh, as we were transitioning between high school pastors. Tom Eichem, our executive pastor here, and myself kind of filled in for the summer and we preached the gospel of John. And I remember being consistently blown away as I studied and prepared to teach this portion of scripture every week. Uh, Much to the dismay of my parents, I have a Gospel of John tattoo on my arm, which I got a couple years ago. It it doesn't say Gospel of John on my arm. It's an eagle. And in stained glass architecture and in classic sort of church buildings, the eagle symbolizes John's Gospel. It's got a banner under it from chapter one. It says, in him is life. My wife also has a Gospel of John tattoo from John 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And that's how I knew she was the one. For all I know, our son is going to be born with the Gospel of John tattoo, and this is just going to be hereditary. The point being, I love this portion of Scripture. It's the sort of book you could spend a whole lifetime in and always be uncovering something new about the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And at the same time, the longer I spend in John's Gospel, the more I realize that it is not a simple book to navigate. It's the book that we so often tell new believers they should start with, and I don't know that that's a good idea. Bruce Milne is a Canadian theologian, and in his commentary on John that came out about 20 or 30 years ago, he says it's kind of like a swimming pool where there's a shallow end in which a child can wade, but, but John is also deep enough to drown an elephant. There's a, there's a richness, there's a depth to this portion of Scripture, and I think we'll see that in our passage for the morning, but before we get into that, let me just give you a little bit of context, where we've come from. Over the last few weeks, we've been walking through John chapter six, which recounts a particularly famous miracle in Jesus's life where he feeds over 5,000 people. We're we're told that the crowd was 5,000 men, but that doesn't include women and children, so Mark mentioned this last week. It could have been 10, it could have been 15,000 people for all we know. He feeds them with five loaves of bread and two Fishes, And this is a particularly important miracle in Jesus' life. It's one of the few that's recorded in all of the Gospels. This is something that was central to the ministry of Jesus for his earliest followers. And after this miracle, we're told that the crowd wants to make Jesus their king. And honestly, 
Who can blame them, right? This guy has the, the ability to just miraculously multiply food. We could go to Burns Steakhouse and we could have a buffet right, if this guy is our king. And especially in a, in a time in which food is scarce and people regularly go hungry, who wouldn't want a king who can meet their physical needs? But we're told that Jesus recognizes this and he sort of slips away. He's not interested in being made king, especially not the sort of king that they want him to be. And somewhere in the night, Jesus' disciples are making their way across a body of water to the other shore, the city of Capernaum. That's when they see Jesus walking on the water towards them. And we're told that when Jesus gets into the boat with them, the, the storm dies down and immediately they are at their destination. We don't know if this is teleportation or if this is a miracle unto itself, but they're suddenly just there. And the next day, the crowd catches up with Jesus. The people that Jesus fed the previous day find him in Capernaum the following day. And that brings us to our passage. This is John 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the boat, on, on the other side of the sea, saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And they found him on the other side of the sea. They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father has set his seal. So the crowd catches up with Jesus. They find him on the other side of the shore, and they realize that he didn't get in the boat with the disciples. They saw the boat leave, and somehow he's there with them. Jesus doesn't mention anything about that walking on water piece. That was just for the disciples. He actually ignores their question altogether, how did you get here? And he just says, the only reason that you found me is because you're hungry again. The, the only reason that you crossed the sea to find me is because you want another free lunch. Jesus doesn't mix words with this crowd. They're only interested in another meal. They're not interested in him they're not interested in the sign and what it says about his identity and his character. They're interested in the gift that they received from him. And it's not just the crowds that Jesus criticizes here. In some ways, I think that Jesus' criticism, you're only here because you're interested in what I can give you, is a criticism of all of us at some point or another in our lives of faith. Because so often I think many of us are only interested in Jesus insofar as he has something to offer us. Sometimes this comes through in the way that we share our testimonies. Every so often I'll have a conversation with a friend or somebody that I know and, and the, the conversation will turn towards the subject of the Lord and I'll ask, well, so how did, how did you become a Christian? How, how did you step into uh, the life of faith? And they'll say something like, well, things were going really bad at work or I just lost my job, things were tough, and I just decided, I was like, you know what, I gotta get back in church. So I started going to church, and things got better. 
Uh, another way that, that this story gets told from time to time is, you know, things were really rough in my marriage. We were, we were on the rocks. We were on our last leg, and my wife kept telling me, I have to go to church, or my husband kept telling me, I've got to go to church. And so we went back to church, and now our marriage is thriving. Now, don't get me wrong. I do think that there are real benefits to following Jesus. I I don't doubt for a minute that following Christ will result in a better ability to navigate the obstacles of work. And I, I don't doubt for a second that following Jesus will result in a stronger marriage and, and bringing healing to what has been strained. But all of these descriptions of why we follow Jesus are more concerned with the bread than the bread giver. I follow Jesus because he makes my life better and he gives me what I need. But that's not why we follow Jesus. We don't follow Jesus because Jesus gives us things. We follow Jesus because Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. And even if he gave us nothing, even if we never found another job, he would still be worth following. Jesus says to these crowds, the only reason you're here is because you want bread. You're not here because that bread points to who I am as your Savior and your Lord. The crowd is more concerned with Jesus meeting their physical needs than they are with him meeting their spiritual needs. And I'm not gonna pretend like parsing out the difference here is always easy. There is sort of a a challenging uh, dilemma in Christian ministry about how much do we concern ourselves with people's physical needs and how much do we concern ourselves with people's physical needs. I'll tell you, one of the errors we can fall into and one that I see pretty commonly today is people saying things like, just preach the gospel, stop worrying about all these social issues. Just preach the gospel. We're not here to fix the world, we're just here to get people to heaven. But the Bible, again and again and again, rebukes people for their harsh treatment of the poor and the needy. The Bible has a lot to say about caring for those who are suffering, who are going hungry, of defending the widow and the orphan. The Bible has a lot to say about that. It warns us against this purely spiritual view of salvation that doesn't change the way we care for people and their physical needs. At the same time, I think another error that is rampant in our day is that we can focus so much on people's physical needs that we neglect their deeper spiritual needs. There was a quote that I I first heard when I was in high school. It's obviously much older than that. It's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, uh, the great monk in the Middle Ages. The quote is, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Now, 15-year-old Travis thought this was the most profound thing he'd ever heard. And I brought it up in every Bible study I could so that people would think I was a deep thinker. You know, oh my gosh, this this 15-year-old quotes St. Francis of Assisi. (laughs) And I still think that there's something to that quote. I think the, the sentiment captured there is good and it's right and it's important, but it's incomplete. The reality is that words are always necessary in the preaching of the gospel. Because it doesn't really matter how much you volunteer at the local food bank. It doesn't matter how much money you give to charity. Nobody can look at your tax return and how much you've given to charity and conclude from that that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. It always requires words. 
accompanied with deeds of mercy. Words are always necessary in the preaching of the gospel. So at some point we have to speak. We have to explain the reason why we foster and adopt children is because we believe that in Christ, God has adopted us into the family of God. The reason why we feed the poor and we care for the needy is because we believe that people have been made in the image of God and they have inherent dignity and worth and they deserve respect and to be cared for. Why? Because of what we believe about Jesus and the gospel. Jesus meets the physical needs of this crowd. He provides food for them. But it's not just so they don't have to buy lunch. No, it's because he wants to make a deeper point about himself. Jesus doesn't divorce the physical needs from the spiritual needs. He sees them as being connected. This act of mercy, it's done with a purpose. And Jesus gets to the heart of why he's fed the crowd in verse 35. We're told Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus says, the reason why I fed you yesterday, the reason why I met those physical needs is not just so that you won't be hungry. It's so that you can learn something important about my identity. That bread from yesterday, it's meant to serve as a picture of your need for me, the true bread. One of my, uh, one of my favorite things I get to do here at the church is to teach our foundations classes. Uh, foundations is kind of the way that we do Sunday school here at Bay Life, except that it's on Tuesdays, so it's Tuesday school. And foundations, at its core, is these four core classes. One is introduction to scripture, how do we read the Bible? The next one is introduction to theology, what do Christians believe? The one we're getting ready to do in the fall, which you can sign up for at GroupLink, uh, is spiritual disciplines. What does it mean to pray? What does it mean to fast? And then we do another class on ethics. Those are the core classes of foundations. But then we have what I call the fun classes, which is not to say that the other ones aren't fun. I hope they are. But the fun classes tackle things that are maybe a little off the beaten path. So last fall, Jerry Greaves, who's an elder here, taught a class on the Bible and the end times. Uh, my favorite thing that I get to teach when it comes to the fun classes and foundations is theology of food. And I love that class because it's such a weird topic. Like I'm convinced that half of the people who sign up for it sign up for it because it's just such a weird thing. And they're like, theology of what? And they sign up because they can't imagine what the class could be about. And then I think the other half of people sign up because they're hoping that there is food involved in theology of food, <laughs> which there is. But the first week of theology of food, we try and answer this question that's asked by a Methodist scholar, a guy named Norman Worsba, in his book, Food and Faith, he asks the question, why did God create a world in which every living thing has to eat in order to live? Have you ever thought about that before? Why did God make the world this way? Why did God make us with stomachs and digestive tracts and taste buds? He didn't have to do it that way, but he did. He created us with a need to eat in order to live. And I think one of the reasons why God does that is in order to teach us that at every single moment of our existence, we are dependent on someone or something else. 
Nobody is an island unto themselves. Nobody is truly self-sufficient. Like my wife is, is nearly eight months pregnant now. We're looking forward to the birth of our son in October. And that baby is dependent on her for his nutrients. If she doesn't eat, he doesn't eat. And we, in turn, are dependent on Publix for our nutrients. And Publix, in turn, is dependent on farmers and, and factories and, and, and people who are harvesting crops, right? We are all dependent on something outside of ourselves to sustain us. And people in Jesus' day knew this intimately. I should also add that the keto diet wasn't a big thing in the first century. And so for people, the, the fundamental building block of their diet, the thing that they ate most, the thing that was essential to life next to water was bread. Bread is, bread is the, the basic food group for these people. To lack bread is to lack a source of life. Without bread, you die. And Jesus draws on this. He says, I am the bread of life. This thing that you need in order to live physically, you need me that much more. That's how important I am to your life and your well-being, that I am true bread. So contrary to what the keto diet has told you, uh, bread is not an inherently evil thing. In some sense, it exists to point us to our need for Jesus. The reason why Jesus feeds these people the day before is to serve as a picture of what's ultimately true, that they are every bit as dependent on him for their lives as they are on bread to fill their stomachs and give them energy to live through the day. I wonder if that's how you view your need for Jesus. Do you see him as essential to life, to flourishing? to making it through the day. Is Jesus that essential to you? Is he your daily bread? Or is he something that you've tagged on to an already pretty good life? Jesus is not meant to be a supplement. He's meant to be central to what sustains us. As the conversation continues, Jesus continues to, to raise the stakes among his listeners. This is a huge passage. I wish we could go through it verse by verse, but let me call your attention to verse 49, or sorry, verse 48. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. We're told that the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. I mentioned that this is a challenging passage and this is why. Um, you can see it even in Jesus' own day. Uh, we're told a, a little bit later in verse 66 that after what scholars call Jesus' bread of life discourse, after this sermon that Jesus gives, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
right? This was not a seeker-sensitive sermon. Jesus effectively shrunk his followers by a lot. In fact, if you kind of read this passage all the way through, it seems by the end of it that the only people who are left following Jesus from this crowd are the 12 apostles. Everybody else walks away, and that's no small crowd, right? Remember that this was 5,000 men plus women and children, and Jesus starts talking about this eat my flesh, drink my blood stuff, and people are like, never mind. <laughs> Not what I signed up for. Totally cool if you're giving us like fish and chips, but, but eating you and drinking you doesn't sound like something I'm interested in devoting my life to. And you can see at every point that Jesus keeps increasing the tension. They keep asking him for clarification you know, how, how can we eat your flesh? And he's just like, you really have to do it. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no life in you. My, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. It gets stranger and stranger and stranger. So it was a controversial sermon even in Jesus' day. It's controversial today, especially among Catholics and Protestants, because for our Roman Catholic friends, they'll very often point to this passage and say, this is how we can know that Jesus is bodily present in communion. Because Jesus says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in me. Therefore, we can reason from this that in the bread, Jesus is really there. And in the wine, Jesus is really there. On the other side of the fence, you've got a lot of Protestants who are afraid of that interpretation because we don't believe that. We don't think Jesus is physically and bodily present in elements. And so they'll say this passage has nothing at all to do with communion. There's no connection here. And and I've just got to admit to you, I'm kind of putting my foundations nerd teacher hat on right now. But it's important to understand this passage. So what do we make of this, right? This is a controversial, it's a challenging portion of scripture. I'll put my cards on the table and I'll say that I think both of them are kind of right and kind of wrong. Uh, on, On the the more traditional side that sees this as a reference to communion, I do think that they have a point. John's gospel is unique in that it doesn't actually record for us Jesus' institution of the Last Supper. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's in 1 Corinthians. It's not in John. We're, We're told about the Last Supper, but when Jesus holds up the cup and says, this is my blood and the bread and this is my body, that that doesn't happen in John. This is the closest we get to it. And it's interesting that Jesus has been talking about bread, and he says, if you don't eat my flesh, you'll have no life in you. And then they, they're like, what, what are you talking about? And he goes, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, well, wh- where did that come from, right? I thought we were just talking about bread. But if you kind of frame that in terms of communion, you, you can see how Jesus is drawing this connection. It's hard to believe that the earliest Christians wouldn't have seen in this some sort of a reference to the Lord's Supper. And in reality, I think that for many of us, we have this almost allergic reaction to understanding the Bible in a way that sounds too, quote unquote, Catholic. And sometimes that can cause us to ignore things that are clear in scripture because we're afraid of giving up too much ground. But the unintentional effect of this is that we ignore something that the Bible might even clearly be teaching because we don't want the people we disagree with to be right about anything. And that's true not just in religion. That's true in your argument with your wife. That's true in politics. That's true in everything. We don't want the people who are on the other side from us to be right about anything. But I do think that this passage 
points us at least to something true about communion. Not all the way what we would hear in a Catholic church. I don't think Jesus is physically present in the elements, but I do think that in some way Jesus meets with us at the table, and he might even meet with us in a unique way. I know I've, I've personally experienced this. It was a little over a year ago now that my dad was uh, diagnosed with cancer. It came as a shock to our family. It was unexpected. And in the early days of that, um, we didn't know how far the cancer had spread. We didn't know if treatment was possible. I didn't know if I had months left with my dad. It was a time of incredible uncertainty. And about three days after his diagnosis, we visited a, a friend of mine's church in Orlando. Um, and uh, my friend Josh, who's a, a minister at this church, was preaching on the event uh, recorded earlier in John 6, Jesus walking on water and calming the storm. And I remember thinking, isn't it amazing that God in his mercy brings us to this church in Orlando and Josh is preaching on exactly what I need to hear right now. What, what an incredible sign that, that even in all of this, God is caring for our family. And then we transition from that to communion. Now this was kind of an earlier stage in our COVID season and so people were triple masked and they had gloves and they had, you know, everything was sanitized and I remember uh, one of the ministers walked up to the pew that we were in and he handed us the wafer and uh, as he handed me the wafer, he said, the body of Christ keep you in eternal life. The blood of Christ keep you in eternal life. And I don't know what happened in that moment, but the waterworks started. Like I just broke down. I was like crying into my mask and using it as a Kleenex, which defeats the whole purpose, right? <laughs> I was a mess. I looked at my wife and she's crying. Like it was, it was, it was otherworldly. Because in that moment, in some unique way, I encountered Jesus in the middle of all of the pain and all of the suffering and all of the uncertainty, in some unique way, Jesus was there with me at the table in a way that I had not yet encountered him before. I think this passage does point us to the fact that communion is a big deal. It's something that Jesus uses to strengthen us and communicate life to us so that we can continue to follow him when things are difficult. At the very same time, on the other side, nobody in Jesus' original audience would have heard this and gone, oh, you're talking about communion, right? Because it hadn't even happened yet. There hasn't been a Last Supper. Jesus hasn't given them the, the elements of communion. And so you can't press that too far. You can't take it and run with it and say, this is only about communion. It, I think it is, but it's not just about that because Jesus spoke these words to people who didn't have any idea what that was. And they're pretty bothered by it. There's, there's a, a couple reasons for that. One, Jesus continually uses uh, the, the term sarks for his flesh. And this is kind of a gross term in uh, the Greek. It's almost like eat my skin and drink my blood. He's like, it's almost like he's trying to gross him out. And then he keeps talking about drinking his blood. Well, in Judaism, consuming meat with blood in it or drinking blood was forbidden. Right? This is something that the law directly forbids, and so you can see the crowd being offended by it. 
But more than that, because they didn't have Publix back then, they knew the process by which you ate another living thing, whether it was cattle or, uh, or sheep or, or some sort of livestock. That thing had to die first. And Jesus keeps making this statement that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in me. And they're going, wait a minute, that means you've got to die. We just tried to make you king. And here you are talking about death. Even here, Jesus is alluding to the cross. He's pointing them to the reality that without his sacrificial death on the cross, nobody will ever truly experience life. The same thing is true for us. Without the cross of Jesus, without his blood shed and his body broken, we will never find true life. I don't know if you know the Lord or not. I don't know where you're at in your life. But I can tell you that Jesus' words are true. Unless the cross becomes your everything, you will never find fullness of life. After saying this, the, the crowds have had enough. They're more than happy to follow Jesus when he's handing out free fish sandwiches. They're totally cool with a king who will feed them and keep them well fed. But a king who promises that he's going to die and that that's how he will bring life to his people, that is too much. That's not the sort of king that they're interested in lining up to follow. That seems ridiculous to them. They say, this is a hard teaching. Who can understand it? And thousands of people turn away from Jesus. Like, I, I want you to kind of picture this. There, there's probably not even a thousand people in this room right now. You might be getting close to it if you combine first and second service. And all of these people hear what Jesus is saying and they turn and leave. But it's the same in our day. The cross, the need for death and resurrection, it's something that people find ridiculous. I remember uh, watching a debate between a famous atheist and a famous Christian. The debate took place in the mid-2000s. I watched it four or five years ago. And they were going back and forth about things like, you know, does science disprove God? And can, can a scientist believe in miracles? And is there evidence for a creator? And they, they kind of went toe-to-toe on all these things. And I think it was in the closing statements that the atheist was given a chance to sort of summarize his thinking. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. It's been years since I saw it. Uh, but he said, you know, uh, my, my debate partner here has made a lot of great philosophical arguments about you know, an intelligent designer and, and the, the orderliness of the universe. He's made a lot of great points, and that's all, that's all well and fine. But this guy doesn't just believe in God. This guy's a Christian. He believes that that God that he's talking about, that intelligent designer, became a human being in a small, nothing town in the Roman Empire and somehow died on the cross for all of our sins, and that's ridiculous. Can, can you hear the echo of Jesus' listeners? This is a hard teaching. Who can understand it? I'm not interested in following this. You're telling me you've gotta die? We wanted to make you king, and you're telling me you've gotta die? No thanks. That's silly. And so the crowd leaves. And then we get to what is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. Verse 67. 
Jesus turns to the 12 disciples. You can picture this mass exodus of people. And the disciples are like, what are you doing? You just lost your whole, all your followers. What are you doing? And Jesus turns to them in verse 67. And he says, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answers him. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered, did I not choose you 12? And then he references Judas and he says, one of you is of the devil. We give Peter a really hard time in the church and he deserves it. Peter does a lot of dumb stuff. But every once in a while, Peter gets something right. And this is one of those instances. As there are thousands of people walking away from Jesus, Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, so what about you? I've just dropped something really difficult into your lap. I promise that, that I'm gonna have to die in order for you to experience the life I have for you. Do you wanna leave too? And Peter says, where else? would we go? For all of Peter's shortcomings, all of his mistakes, this is one of the times that he gets things right. The crowds are only interested in following Jesus when he gives them what they want, which is bread. But Peter is interested in following Jesus because of who he is. Peter says, you are the Holy One of God, where else would we go? Even when Jesus calls him to grapple with things that are difficult, which he won't always do perfectly, Peter recognizes that Jesus is worth following no matter the cost. And I don't know where you find yourself in your walk with God. I don't know if Jesus has called you to something difficult, something that makes you want to turn back. But I know that at some point or another, Jesus will do that. He'll call us to a costly obedience. And my prayer for you, Baylife, is that you would answer that call in the words of Peter. Lord, where else would I go? Only you have the words of life. I am with you to the end, no matter the cost. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are good and gracious. You're merciful. And Lord, you uh, are providing the food that we'll eat today when we leave church. And that food is meant to remind us that as much as we need lunch, we need Jesus more. That only he has the words of life. Help us to love you for who you are and not just what you give us. Help us to follow you even when things are difficult. Teach us, Lord, to see Jesus as the true bread, the true life, our true source of strength. God, send us out into the world to declare this news to our friends, to our family, to our coworkers. God, bring us back together next week to celebrate your goodness and your provision. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, the bread of life, and we say amen. Amen. Bay Life will see you next week.